like the eternal city that is Rome. Hello, everyone. So welcome to the show, Scott Hahn. I have them muted right now because we're having a bit of difficulties. So we're just going to have to kind of play things by ear, testing everything out. But we'll have a great show for everyone. We'll uh, just kind of start out here by me unmuting Scott Hahn. So um, welcome to the show, Scott Hahn. <laughs> Wonderful to be with you, Michael. Thanks for the invitation and the virtual hospitality. <laughs> Thank you. So we'll be discussing Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. This is Dr. Hahn's new book with co-author Brandon McGinley. So just to jump right into things, following up on your previous book, It is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion. In the introduction to this book, uh, this current book, you wrote, We heard feedback from folks who said that while they loved what we'd written, in the previous book, they saw little that they could apply to their lives today. Thus, you wrote this follow-up, in which you intend to answer those sort of questions by exploring the powerful biblical model of the church in exile. So how does the concept of the Christian exile enhance the former book's vision of a Christian society? Now, I'll unmute it's Dr. Hahn here, and we'll take it away. Well, that's a great question, Michael. I think we need to see two things with regard to this new book from Brandon and me. On the one hand, it was designed to be a standalone book. So you don't have to read the previous book. It is right and just in order to appreciate this. On the other hand, what we also have done is to address the questions that our previous book raised, you know. But to be honest, there is a sort of trilogy that wasn't designed in advance because you go back three books to a book entitled The First Society, The Sacrament of Matrimony and the Restoration of the Social Order. And, you know, I wrote that when I had become an empty nester. I wasn't superstitious, but I was aware of the fact that I don't want to write about marriage and family life until I've gotten through the most important parts, until my youngest son has already kind of graduated and moved on. And so while we were looking, you know, when I was looking at the, um, the first society, uh, that book that came out about four years ago, I explored the fact that living the sacrament of matrimony is probably going to prove to be the most effective and powerful way to affect lasting change in our culture, however decadent it is. And then the second book that you mentioned, It Is Right and Just, I co-authored with Brandon McGinley who's like 30 years younger than me, but we have entered into a friendship and he's become a conversation partner. And I have enjoyed our conversations. We probably spent more than a hundred hours together. And when we were talking about it is right and just, why the future of civilization depends on true religion, what we recognized on the one hand was the obligation that we have in scripture and in our tradition as Catholic Christians to fulfill the Great Commission, not only to make disciples within all nations, but to make disciples of all nations, as Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 28. And so back then, I was fond of quoting the Catechism, paragraph 2105, which reminds us that the duty, the duty of offering God genuine worship 
concerns man both individually and socially. In fact, this is the traditional Catholic teaching on the moral duty of individuals and societies toward the true religion and the one church of Christ. And it continues, by constantly evangelizing people, the church works toward enabling them to infuse the spirit of Christ into the mentality and mores, laws, and structures of the communities in which they live. And so the social duty of Christians is to respect and awaken in each person the love of the true and the good, and that requires them to make known the worship of the one true religion. And it concludes by stating that this is what it means to live out the kingship of Christ. Now, that book, It is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion, seemed to many people to be intriguing, exciting, and yet kind of an overreach because none of us expect to see a transformed Catholic culture in our own lifetime. I've got six kids, 21 grandkids. I don't think our grandkids are going to be seeing that anytime soon. But what I really was concerned about, and Brandon too, we've lost the desire to see the, the worship of Christ, the sacrifice of the Mass, even though every week we're always hearing or saying it is truly right and just our duty and our salvation always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise. And so if that's the case, it's not just private, it's public. It's not just personal, it's social. And so at the end of the book, It Is Right and Just, people are saying, well, what can we do in the meantime? And I get it because the fact is, when you find a lot of people who are striving to be virtuous and yet are afraid of their government leaders, and not just the secular politicians, but even sometimes the clergy who seem to be complicit, you know, what do you do with your frustration? What do you do with your anger? What do you do with your discouragement? Well, the first thing you do is recognize this is nothing new. The idea that people are striving to be virtuous and yet are afraid of their government is almost a perfect description for what Jesus, Mary, and Joseph faced back in the first century there at Bethlehem, when Herod is seeking to destroy the newborn Messiah. And the clergy are complicit with this political murderer, you know, and telling them, yeah, from Micah, you know that it's in Bethlehem. So the Holy fam Family fled to Egypt, and they're exiled, as it were, which is why we dedicate the book to the Holy Family, because they kind of set the pace. They give us that example. But you go backwards into the Old Testament, and you'll discover that the covenant is the center. It's this bond of love between God and his people. And even the Hebrew word for people, um, reflects its, its, uh, its family, its, its kinsmen. And so when you find that you break the covenant, God does not sever his ties with us, but he does punish us. We call that the discipline or the punishment of the covenant. But this is where I think most people still get it somewhat wrong, if not entirely wrong, that God doesn't punish his people. Well, he punishes them for breaking the covenant in all kinds of ways, but he doesn't punish us to get back at us. He punishes us to get us back to him. And as you hear the scriptures, you know, in recent days and weeks, we've been reading from the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra the high priest and Nehemiah, who is the lay ruler who brings back the third wave of exiles to Jerusalem. And what you discover is that for centuries, the, uh, the covenant had been broken. And, you know, you, you have all kinds of excuses. But at the end of the day, God is basically saying, because you haven't kept the covenant, I'm going to enforce the covenant. And again, not to get even with you, not to get back at you, but to get you back to me.
And one of the most important passages that we draw from in this book, Catholics in Exile, is Hebrews 11. That sort of becomes the, uh, the spiritual map because when you read Hebrews 11 and you go back and reread scripture and you re basically you reappropriate the living tradition of the Catholic Church, you realize that even when Abraham got to the promised land, he recognized that he was a sojourner, a pilgrim, that he was not yet home. And why? Well, Hebrews 11 makes it very clear for he looked forward to the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. So that when he ends up gaining the promised land and they end up building the holy city of Jerusalem, that is basically an earthly sign of a heavenly homeland. And so whether you're in Jerusalem and in the temple or you're in Babylonian captivity as exiles, you know through faith that we're not home yet, that ultimately seeing the face of God the Father is our one true homecoming. And Hebrews 11 goes on and on to talk about how that was true for the patriarchs, that was true for the prophets, that was true throughout the Old Testament, just as it is true for us. And so when Jesus ascends into heaven and takes the souls of the faithful departed from the Old Testament and repopulates heaven, they form this cloud of witnesses that you read about in Hebrews 12, right after the author has gone through the hall of faith, identifying the patriarchs along with all of the faithful men and women throughout the Old Testament. And you realize they were not primarily gearing up just to own a little slice of turf about the size of New Jersey called Canaan, called Israel or whatever. They wanted to have that land to be a light to all of the other nations. So we as Catholics in the 21st century, and especially in 2023, we find ourselves you know, striving to be virtuous, not only individually, but in our marriages and our families and our communities. And yet we're sometimes afraid because these government leaders seem to be targeting us more than those who are, are lawless. And it's easy to give into anxiety. It's perfectly understandable to give into anger and fear. But what do we do? You know, when Paul tells the Ephesians that the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God, we've got to really sit down, pray, study scripture, and talk amongst ourselves and say, okay, why does God have us in exile? And the purpose ultimately is something deeply personal, deeply practical, and truly profound. And that is, he is preparing us for something that is not just out of this world in the sense that we're so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. No, in fact, when you understand the message of Jeremiah to the initial wave of exiles who went into Babylon, you know, what we do also in drawing from Jeremiah 29 and other passages too, is to show us that we are in exile as a reminder that no matter where we are, no matter how good times are or bad times we face, we're ultimately on a pilgrimage that is not to New York City, that is not to Rome or even the Vatican, but it is to Jerusalem in heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem. And this makes us somewhat fearless on earth. This makes us confident that even you know when we seem to fall, God writes straight with crooked lines, that his strength is made perfect on our weakness. And so in very practical steps, we outline how it is that we ought to think about our marriage. We ought to think about our family. We ought to prioritize our prayer life and the mass and the other sacraments that are really designed to empower us to get home. You know, another passage that we draw from in Philippians chapter three, verse 20, Paul reminds the people in Philippi that our commonwealth is in heaven. 
And he uses the technical legal term for citizenship, polytuma. Our citizenship is in heaven. He doesn't conclude, therefore, you don't care about what happens in Philippi. You know, you're just rearranging the deck chairs on the on the Titanic. No, we re we have dual citizenship. And so because our primary commonwealth is in heaven, that actually makes us more fearless, more faithful, more virtuous in our earthly affairs. And there are so many other sources that we draw from in the Old Testament and the New. But, you know, when you look at the Holy Family in Bethlehem fleeing to Egypt, or when you look at Jesus and Mary coming into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, that pilgrimage down to Jerusalem for the Passover, once again, the clergy aren't all pure. Many are corrupt, beginning with the high priest. The political rulers, Pilate and Herod, are certainly corrupt. And so what do we learn from? That this is ultimately the way of the cross. This is the way of life that we as Catholics ought to accept. And it helps us to overcome this temptation towards a, a form of nostalgia, where we find ourselves sometimes longing for the 50s, when Bishop Sheen was getting an Emmy, when Bing Crosby was was sort of playing the priest in the bells of St. Mary, or in the pre-conciliar days when the seminaries were full. And there were lots of blessings back then. But I mean, the fact is, we were in exile even in the suburbs. So we are in exile even now. We want to get involved for sure, socially and politically. But as American Catholics, we've got to make sure that we're not just thinking in terms of election cycles. We're Catholics, and so we think in terms of generations. The church thinks in terms of centuries. So we're not just planting the fall crop that we'll draw from in the winter to eat. We're also planting forests that we probably won't live long enough to see, but our children and our grandchildren are going to have lumber for their homes, their furniture, or whatever else they need. So we think pragmatically in terms of election cycles, but we also think in a transcendent way, short-term, long-term. And I think this is why Catholics have discovered through the centuries in the most adverse circumstances that the Catholic faith is not only capable of turning sinners into saints, it's also capable of transforming sinful cultures into, in a certain way, a civilization of love. You know, when Jesus called the 12 to make disciples of all nations, they were fishermen, they were tax collectors, you know, from Galilee, and they're taking on what? The Roman Empire? What are the chances? I mean, practically zilch. And yet against all odds, not just through martyrdom, but through daily prayer, through marriage and family, and through the gift of friendship, we prevailed against a culture of death that was totally pagan. And yet by the third century, by the fourth century, as Rodney Stark shows in his book, The Rise of Christianity, the conversion rate was something like 40% per decade throughout the empire. So it didn't become Christian because Constantine issued the Edict of Milan in, a, in the early fourth century. No, he issues that edict in order to kind of decriminalize the Catholic faith because so many Roman citizens had become Catholic. It was mostly a kind of ground up from the ground up and not just from, you know, on high coming down through the empire, through the emperor. And I think what we have to do is really just adjust our expectations through daily prayer, most especially, but also through doing really good work. We shouldn't be shocked when we face opposition, hostility, or persecution. In fact, we, if we're reading the New Testament closely, we ought to be shocked when it's just easy street, when it's easy breezy. And so for me, I worked with Brandon on this book because early on, both of us realized 
we need this book, even if nobody else does. But the fact is what we've discovered is like everybody else does. I was talking last week to a fellow who got an early copy and he's a very close and critical reader. So I braced myself. I wasn't sure what he would say. He said, I think this is my favorite book of all of yours because I've read a lot of others that I really profited from, but this was the one I really need, especially given the, you know, the twists and turns of our culture today and even our church. I was glad to hear it. Yeah, so I'm finally jumping in. I had to unmute myself there, and there was plenty of times I wanted to jump in, but I didn't want to risk the technical issues. Uh, so really going back a step here, um, you wrote in the book, we have to, we have work to do and a mission to achieve in the place where he has sent us. But paradoxically, we can only hope to achieve our mission if we keep constantly in mind that our home and our hope is not here. So then, what is the exile's mission in the world? How does he, the Christian exile, interact with society, with a pagan society at large? And I'll unmute you here. So switching places. Sure. I mean, what we have to do practically, spiritually, is pace ourselves because we're not running a sprint. You know, we're really on a marathon. It's kind of a cross-country meet as well where we're not even sure of what lies before us, you know, and yet in the word of God, scripture and tradition, and in the writings of the saints and the doctors and mystics of the church, we find this echo that uh, we hear, for example, in Jeremiah 20, 29. I know a lot of people who look to Jeremiah 29 and they cite verse 11 as sort of like their favorite verse. And I can see why. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. But to really appreciate verse 11, you got to go back and reread the first 10 verses that lead up to that, because this letter of Jeremiah, is an, it's an oracle coming from the prophet, but it's written for those who find themselves in exile, captivity. So they're sojourning in a pagan land in Babylon of all places. You, you go back to Jeremiah 24, and you realize, well, some were sent into exile, but others weren't. A lot of people survived and stayed behind in Jerusalem after the, after the towns of Judea were conquered. And everybody who was there, comfortable in the capital city of Jerusalem, looked with pity upon the exiles. And yet, Jeremiah delivers this oracle. It's a vision of a basket of figs, good figs and bad figs. And he addresses the rulers who are sitting kind of tall and comfortable in Jerusalem and says, you think you're the good figs because you've been spared. In fact, you're rotten to the core. The ones that God loves are the ones that he sent into exile so that through their weakness, through their humiliation, they're going to call upon me. I'm going to hear them. I'm going to provide for them and redeem them. And I'm also going to redeem you, but only because of them. So the hardship of the exiles who have gone before are actually the wellspring of holiness. And so you have the rulers in the political realm, you have the priests and the clergy as well, but they've been delivered a message from Jeremiah that is profoundly upsetting. So back to Jeremiah 29, what we call the Jeremiah option. You see God speaking through his prophet Jeremiah to those who are in captivity, to those who are in total distress, to those on the brink of despair, to those who are fighting anger and depression. And what does he say? 
I have sent you into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. First of all, build your houses and live in them. Okay, so don't just live in tents. Don't just go from place to place. Second, plant gardens and eat their produce. Get down to daily life. Thirdly, take wives and have sons and daughters. Fourth, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, grandsons and granddaughters. In other words, focus on marriage and recognize the highest priority is family life, your spouse, your children, and your grandchildren. And then you will multiply there and do not decrease. Be open to the life-giving power of marital love and family life. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the shalom of the Babylonian towns and villages where you find yourselves transplanted. And the seventh and final element is this. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will also find your welfare. It's more than just bloom where you're planted. The seventh element of this series of calls is prayer. Pray together in your family, pray together in the community, and be a light to the nations, beginning with, in a certain sense, the wickedest one of all, which is Babylon. Their ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed Jerusalem later, as well as demolished and desecrated the temple. And so it's like, who are we hearing from? Is this the Lord God through his prophet, or is this just some mixed signal? But over and over again, Jeremiah is speaking to the exile, words of, words of comfort and promise. Now, later on, it gets a little ruffled, and that's why, and that's because you, you, you find that Jeremiah has delivered this initial message and within a few decades, the people of Judah who are exiled in Babylon did what he said. They planted gardens, they built houses, they raised their families, they were having their grandkids, but they're flourishing almost too much. They're prospering. They're sort of not really plugged into the hope of a future return. So, you know, what, what bugs Jeremiah even more than the fact that the people of God are in exile and don't know what to do what bugs them the most is that the people of God are in exile and don't even know it any longer. They're so comfortable, so cozy. And so there are later oracles that he has to deliver. And it sort of reminds us of where we are when we wake up and realize, wow, there is nothing Catholic or Christian about our culture anymore. It's not just post-Christian. It's becoming increasingly hostile or anti-Christian. And so we see our kids, we see our grandkids, and it's so easy to accommodate ourselves to the secular culture around us, when in fact, it really is the opposite. We are to, we're to enculturate the gospel. We're to bring it to bear upon our neighbors as well. And in the process, we have to remind ourselves, okay, we're suffering, we're losing, but it's not enough just to figure out policies. Well, how do we lose more slowly? No, how do we win the holiness of God in a hostile land, if in fact this whole planet and all of human history is designed to get us home. I'm, I'm reminded of a, an interview I heard on a New York City radio a few years ago. The man was 99 years old. He had been raised in a secular Jewish family. And then later in life, he discovered the Christian faith and then the Catholic church. And at 99, he came into the church. And so this interviewer was asking him to summarize your life experience. After all of this, nearly a century, what is the wisdom that you would share with us? And there was a long pause. And then he said, 
with an ironic tone, he said, it comes down to this. We're only here to get out of here. And you might say, well, that's only because he was 99 and he knew he was going to be getting out soon. But he was really right for people who are 29 or 39 or 49 or just 19, that all of it, we really have to live life with an eternal perspective. And that doesn't in any way devalue or diminish what we're doing on earth. If anything, it gives it a sort of eternal value. And this is the point that when we do our daily chores, when we do small deeds, but with sincere faith, hope, and charity, we really end up supernaturalizing what would otherwise be merely natural. And by the time Jeremiah has been done, you know, by the time he's done delivering all of these oracles, you get a sense that perhaps as much or more than any other prophet, he sees that the only logic of God's law and how he enforces it with his people is love. That he's not sending you into exile to get back at you. He's sending us into hardship to get us back to him, to recognize how weak we are, how strong he is, and how much more we need to depend upon him and not upon ourselves so much. And so it, it humbles us so that he can exalt us. I hope that helps. Yeah, and so um, that kind of goes into our next question here. Uh, let me mute this echo here. Uh, okay, I think we're all good here. The devil's playing tricks on us today. Uh, Dr. Scott Hahn joining us. But um, yeah, like one cool connection I noticed about this book's, uh, book, Catholics and Exiles, that at the very end of your introduction, you state that the pilgrimage of this book will lead us to capital H hymns, speaking of Christ. In the very last word of this book, of the very last chapter, it also ends with the same capital H hymn. Uh, and you, so you write at the very end of that chapter, he is with us on this journey. He is all we need. He will see it through. All we have to do is let him. So what then is the relationship between Christ and the exile like? How does Christ transform the exile. How do we let Christ transform us? So take it away, Dr. Hahn. Yeah, so back at the end of the Old Testament, when Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were alive and coming down to Jerusalem annually as pilgrims for the festivals, they might have just sensed that, hey, we're in the promised land up north in Galilee, but still, this is our homeland. But you get a clear sense not only from reading the book of Hebrews, but reading the Gospels, that they're well aware of the fact, as the Holy Family, they're not home yet. That's, again, why we dedicate the book to the Holy Family, because so many of the practical lessons for family life and for spiritual life are drawn by imitating the various members of the Holy Family in Nazareth. First of all, we imitate Christ, but we also want to love him as Mary did. We want to be consecrated to the Blessed Virgin Mary, and the first one to do that was not St. Louis de Montfort, obviously, it was St. Joseph. And so there really is a sense in which the Holy Family is an outpost of heaven. Uh, St. Jose Maria actually described it as the Trinity on earth. And so if we end up getting home and seeing the face of God the Father and the Eternal Son and the glory of the Holy Spirit, then we will know for sure that no matter where we were, whether we were living in Steubenville, Ohio, or inside the Vatican, we were pilgrims throughout that life, and this is what the Holy Family teaches us. And this is why, as you look throughout the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, you know, you see Abraham and Sarah, but you realize that they did not achieve that status as saints. 
you know, there really is only one holy family in all salvation history, and that would be Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. So we draw strength from them, but we do so especially through the communion of saints. And I, I also privilege, you know, we, we emphasize the fact that the sacraments are sort of the ladder and the rungs of the ladder by which we ascend to get home, to see the face of God the Father. They don't make it easy, much less automatic, because we're not robots. But the sacraments are not primarily the rituals that we perform in order to get God to do what we want. They really are the things that God does to make up for what we lack, to give us what we need. And so, you know, I, I was just talking recently to another fellow who uh, read Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. And he said, I can see why you say that it is rooted in it is right and just and the first society. But he says, I see a larger narrative arc with this book and one that I read a few years ago entitled The Lamb's Supper, The Mass is Heaven on Earth. And like bells went off for me because I've known over the years a number of people who've read The Lamb's Supper and it changed their experience of the Mass. You know, we all want to go to heaven. We just don't want to die first. But what I discovered in my first experience at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is that the same prayers, the same songs, the same sacrifice that we're offering, you will find in the book of Revelation, where the angels and the saints and the martyrs are saying the same prayers, the same songs, the Amen, the Gloria, the Alleluia, the Agnus Dei, the Holy, 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 because all we've got to do to go to heaven is go to Mass, and heaven is where we are, whether I knew it or not. And so there really is a kind of trajectory from the Lamb's Supper, where you discover from the book of Revelation that the church is going to face hard times, persecution in every age of church history, in every part of the planet Earth. But all of this is meant to purify us. All of this is meant to empower us. But what is it that gets us through all of these periods of persecution? Well, finding the right politician to vote for, not a bad idea, but it's never going to be the key to success. It's going to be preparing ourselves and our families to enter into the holy sacrifice of the mass. And we'll see that throughout the apocalypse, what comes to earth from heaven is the power we need to persevere and ultimately triumph over the principalities and powers and all of the, the sinful and corrupt rulers, both in the secular state, but also even in the church. And I think this is the practical reminder that has really resonated with Brandon, with me, and a number of others. And why it would be that if somebody has read the Lamb's Supper, this is that sort of heads and this is sort of tails. It's two sides of the same, it's two sides of the same coin, as it were. And you can ask your question, James, if you want to try it out. You can unmute yourself. Uh, hey, Dr. Hun. Uh, so it's kind of funny. You brought up that point of uh, the connection between the Lamb's Supper and uh, this book here. The question I had written before we came into this interview was whether or not there would be a connection between this book and your book, Evangelizing Catholics, as well as your other book, It Is Right and Just. And it's kind of funny, with the way you laid it all out there, you kind of answered my question for me before I asked it by quoting St. Jose Maria Escriva and going, going over all those different points. So I guess I was just curious, how do you see the tie-in between this book and uh, those other two books, It Is Right and Just and Evangelizing Catholics? Your deep, deep connection. You know, uh, I, 
I'm turning 66 later this month. And so my first full year at 65 has given me a sort of retrospective, you know, hindsight. And looking back, not only as my, at my 44 years of marriage, the six kids and the 21 grandkids, but also the 37 years that I've spent as a Catholic. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated the 30th anniversary of our book, Rome Sweet Home. And I'm so grateful to our Lord for how he blessed that. You know, I, Kimberly, I never imagined that the three weeks we spent writing, rewriting and editing each other and that sort of thing, we weren't even sure it would be published, but now it's in over 30 languages by way of translation that's reached millions of people. Um, but the only thing I would say is this, however hard it was to become a Catholic, and it was really challenging, we've discovered it's no easier <laughs> to become a saint. And whatever we had to give up to enter the church, my career, my profession as a pastor, and all of that really can't compare to what we got in our Lord Jesus Christ, his body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Holy Eucharist. We gained, in effect, heaven on earth. We gained divine life in sacrificing these aspects of our own human life, our family life. Uh, but it's, on the one hand, it isn't even worth comparing what we gave up to what we got. On the other hand, 37 years later, realizing that becoming a saint is the only reason we're here. And it certainly isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. We can't do it without the sacraments and the power of the Holy Spirit and that cloud of witnesses that we call the communion of saints. But every morning I realize I need the grace of conversion. For us as Protestants, it was something one and done. It was over with. But for us as Catholics, we recognize we are not holy yet. We're not fully converted. And so conversion for us is lifelong it has to be daily. It's never going to start becoming easy. And so when I see Evangelizing Catholics as one of my favorite books in the last 15 years or so, it's all about how we can get in step with this mission called the new evangelization. I deliberately made the title a sort of double entendre so that we could not only get Catholics to evangelize, we could also see the need to evangelize Catholics. So it's not just a kind of childlike conversion that we have when we enter the church, say, 37 years ago. It's an ongoing conversion. And what does it take? Well, the sacraments, it takes the saints, but it really takes the daily discipline of prayer, the spiritual disciplines, the rosary, going to mass frequently, going to confession frequently as well. But it also means coming home and living this out with my bride, living this out with my kids. I'm so proud and grateful of our Lord for what he's done you know, with Dr. Han the Younger, Michael, our 40-year-old, who's a professor of scripture and theology at one of the finest seminaries in the country. Gabriel's got his nine kids. He's coming to visit us here in a few short days. And he was a focused missionary. And I could go down the whole list, including our son, Father Jeremiah. But I have to say this, that if we understand the message of Rome Sweet Home or evangelizing Catholics or Catholics in exile, it feels a lot to me like spokes that converge upon the hub of the wheel, say with a bicycle or something, because the hub is Christ. We're not home yet. And yet as St. Catherine of Siena would say, halfway home to halfway to heaven is heaven itself. Because if we're living in Christ, if we're following him, if we're walking with each other in the power of the Holy Spirit, despite our weaknesses, but sometimes precisely because of how we, we feel weighed down by our weaknesses, there really is a foretaste of heaven on earth in the Mass, but also in family life and the other sacraments. And I think this is why we have something that the world just completely misses. And yet it's the very thing that the world is dying for. It's dying without. And just living 
this power of love through the Holy Spirit with the saints, you know, it's it can become like Catholic talking points. It can become a checklist of doctrines. But on the other hand, it really can become, you know, the Mysterium Fidei, where all of the doctrines can coalesce in a sacred mystery that is almost too good to be true. But what if it's true? What if it's all true? What if it's the truth and nothing but the truth that we call the Catholic faith? In that case, you know, we may be weighed down with all of these worldly burdens, but at the same time, as Paul would say, we carry in this earthen vessel heavenly treasure. And I think this is why we're not going to get in step with the world. We don't need to. This is not a timely message. It's timeless. And it's one the world is always going to push back on. But I think if we live it out well enough and be content with the fact that we are converting every day and getting trying to get closer to our Lord and to our Lady, we're going to look back and realize God does more with our less as long as we're close to him. And again, this isn't just rhetoric or pietistic, you know, verbiage. This is really what we call the mystery of faith. So, yes, I think that's a very good place to end. We thankfully, with the grace of God, landed this plane very well. It's a great show. Thanks for coming on, Dr. Han. It's probably a good thing that we couldn't speak as much because we heard a lot of wisdom from you. And so um, I would just like to take a second here before we wrap things up to show you this uh, VHS tape I found of the Lamb Lamb's <laughs> Upper. Uh, I don't know where I found this at a used bookstore or something, but uh, yeah, it's pretty neat. It's a relic almost, a Scott Hahn relic. There's a uh, you at the bottom there um, many years ago. So. You've been doing this for many years. Keep it up. Continue to do great work. Thank you, Michael. And thank you, James. And you keep up the great work. And I also noticed that in the background, you have that book in a basket or on the table, a copy of The Lamb's Supper. And uh, I'm grateful to see that, but even more to, to share this book. And I wanted to say, too, oh, wow, look at that stuff. Catholics <laughs> in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home is for Catholics who are fighting frustration and anger, and they need encouragement. And it's, I think, a practical way to find it. And again, thank you both, and God bless you. Keep up the great work. Yes, it was a very good book to read. Uh, let me make sure I'm not muted again. Just a few issues to get out of the way, but I'll pull it up on the screen here. Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. So yes, everyone go check out this book. A very nice read. It's very encouraging. It uh, definitely helped me faith-wise. I didn't expect that. I enjoyed the theology, the Old Testament theology, but coming away, I developed uh, a stronger sense of faith. So thanks again, Dr. Hahn, and thanks uh, for all of your work. May God bless you. Not of the modern world. For, for the modern, 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 modern world. Yes. That's, That's right. Yeah, and, Bishop Barron. Hello, it's from the airport. Oh, yeah. How are you doing? Hello, we're doing good. good. To you. Nice yeah. to meet you. So who are you, sir? I'm Archbishop Joseph Nauman of the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas. Yeah, do you want to bless this recorder? Is that is there a blessing for that? There's a blessing for everything. So, yeah, Lord, we ask you to bless this instrument and use it for good and for evangelization. Amen.